Well, we're starting this new sermon series in the book of Job, which we've called Why? Because the suffering and death that the coronavirus pandemic is causing is provoking all of us to ask this age-old question when faced with suffering, why? The singer-songwriter Ed Ames in the 1960s put it this way, from the canyons of the mind, we wander on and stumble blind while searching for some kind of clue, a road to lead us to the truth, but who will answer? When the soul is darkened by a fear it cannot name, when the mind is baffled and the rules don't fit the game, who will answer? Who will answer? Who will answer? It's a powerful way of framing the problem of suffering. That it's not just that things hurt, though it is at least that, but that the hurt that suffering and things like the coronavirus pandemic cause provoke us to ask this question where we're longing for someone to answer why, why is this happening? And it's no exaggeration to say that in all of history and in all of literature, there's been no more influential treatment of the subject of suffering than Job. Job has comforted countless sufferers through the ages and has provided a framework for people to engage with the problem of suffering and start to find hope in the midst of suffering. And so we're going to look at this hugely influential book over this Sunday and the coming Sunday. This Sunday, as we, um, as we look at this, I want us to see three things that are here from this passage to help us as we suffer and how we can suffer in some sense well, like Job suffered well. That is finding comfort and hope in the midst of suffering. The three things are mystery um, and then worship and then love. So mystery, worship and love. Let's look first of all at mystery. One of the things that strikes you when you read Job chapter one is that it immediately confounds a number of assumptions we have about suffering. So look at verse six. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Now the view of God and Satan and evil and the world that we're presented with here confounds any simplistic assumptions that we might have as we approach the problem of suffering. So for us as um, modern people, when we read this, we're immediately surprised that there's God and he's allowing suffering and that there's God and he's allowing Satan, who is evil, to act. That just makes no sense to us. Because often when the problem of suffering is framed, it's framed in uh, the way of a syllogism, which goes like this. Um, if there is a God who is all-powerful and all-loving, then he would want his creatures to be happy, but patently his creatures are not happy because they're suffering, and therefore there cannot be an all-powerful and all-loving God. In other words, suffering disproves God, so you wouldn't expect to find a God who is all-loving and all-in-control, as we find in Job chapter 1, who allows suffering to take place. Immediately, we can't reconcile those two. It's, it, it overturns any simple assumptions that we had about our worldview and about the presence of suffering in it. But it's important to also note that that would have been the same effect for the people when this was written in the ancient Near East. It would have overturned their assumptions as well. So their assumptions in a much more religious context was that people suffered because they had angered the gods. In fact, this was common in many of the other um, religions and their literatures that they had about suffering. Um, there's an Akkadian poem written about a similar time to Job um, called Ludlow Bel Nemeki, and in it the sufferer says this, I beseeched a dream spirit but it did not enlighten me, 
and the incantation priest with his ritual did not appease the divine wrath against me. In other words, in the Akkadian religion, they're saying, as all traditional religions believe, that you suffer because the gods are angry at you and the way to stop suffering is to appease the anger of the gods. But here in Job, we see that God is not angry at Job. He loves Job. He commends Job to Satan and says, there's no one like my servant Job. And yet he allows Job to suffer. So here's the point. It confounds our assumptions today. It would have confounded the assumptions of the people back then. And pretty much any worldview you come at with suffering, Job chapter one will challenge it because it resists any kind of simple or overly simplistic answers. And the reason for that is that there is profound mystery when it comes to the problem of suffering. We often think that I will only be comforted in suffering if I'm able to tie up all the loose ends, if intellectually I can understand all of the problem of suffering. And then we come to Job chapter one, and whilst there are some answers in it, it provides many, many more questions than we were thinking of. And there's mystery here. There are things we just don't grasp and we just can't fully understand. And here's the point. Comfort in suffering does not come from knowing all the answers to suffering, from tying up all the loose ends to suffering by being in control of it in that intellectual way. But comfort in suffering comes to an extent by knowing the one who has all the answers, God, by knowing the one who is in control and who does get it all, God. In other words, we have to leave some space for mystery. Um, back in the days when they were mapping the world, people were very used to the idea that when you looked at the map, there would be uncharted territory, areas that hadn't yet been mapped. And you wouldn't expect to know everything about the world. People were okay with that. Today, we convince ourselves that we have to know everything in order to maybe feel in control or to feel that we're okay in the world we live in. But we don't need to know everything. We can't know everything. That places an intolerable burden on us to try to know everything. And particularly with the problem of suffering, we're never going to know everything. But we can trust the God who does know everything. And we can allow there to be areas of mystery that will resist simplistic explanations. But equally will enable us to understand something of what's going on. The mystery of Job chapter 1 and suffering. Well, after the mystery, we then move to the next point, which is worship. And one of the things that is so helpful about Job as a book, and one of the reasons why I would encourage you, even though we won't be able to go through the whole book, we'll be doing edited highlights as we go through, but do read it through and do use its beautiful poetry to comfort you. But one of the reasons it's so comforting is that Job is a model for us of how to suffer well. That's the estimation that the book has of him. So right at the end of the book in Job um, chapter 42, verse 7, God says of this. My anger burns against you and against your two friends, he's saying to the miserable comforters. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. In other words, God is saying that Job is a model in how to suffer well. Then in all of the difficulties he faces, and though he does sail close to the wind a number of times and he's not perfect, he ultimately suffers well and never blames God, never speaks sinfully about God in the midst of his suffering. How does he do that? Well, look at Job chapter 1, verse 20. At this, Job got up, tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. What I want you to notice as we use Job as a model in how to suffer well here is the multi-dimensional response of Job. So he's first of all is very emotionally engaged. There's a real emotional intensity about his engagement with the promised suffering. We're told that he um, tears his robe and shaves his head and falls to the ground. And I wonder, I think if we saw someone responding this way today, we'd be reaching for the phone and trying to you know, call up the psychiatrist saying there's something wrong with this person. But there's nothing wrong with Job. He's engaging with the awful emotional intensity, profound sadness and his anger at the wrongdoing of what has happened to him and to his family in this situation. In other words, he's fully engaged in the emotional reality of what's going on. But at the same time, did you notice that he also says something? He says, naked I came um, from my mother's womb and naked I will return. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Let the name of the Lord be praised. In other words, Job is stating theological truths. He's intellectually engaging. That's a statement. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. He's talking about God's sovereignty, God's provision in all things. And then he's drawing a conclusion from it. Let the name of the Lord be praised. That God is to be praised no matter what happens. What's the point that I'm making? Well, Job is engaged on multiple levels. He's engaged emotionally and he's also engaged intellectually and theologically. And that's because the problem of suffering hits us on a number of levels. It isn't just an emotional problem, though it is at least that. Nor is it just an intellectual problem or a theological problem, though it is at least that. It's all of those. It stretches us and challenges us on all of these levels. And therefore, it's only if we engage on all these levels that we can start to experience some comfort in the midst of suffering. People by nature are, will favour one or other of these responses. So some will be very intellectually articulate and they will really want to grapple with the why question of suffering. But then when you ask them maybe how they feel, they'll struggle to actually articulate. Maybe this is you, maybe you've not even actually shed a tear about the coronavirus pandemic. I wonder, as you reflect on that, isn't that odd? Wouldn't it be something or shouldn't it be something that should um, arouse in you profound sadness, tears even? Others will be very, very emotionally engaged. Um, tears will have been shed. There'll be a rawness, their emotions, they'll be able to express how they feel. But then maybe they don't have the intellectual engagement or the theological engagement that means that their feelings have no kind of anchor to tether them and to frame and shape their grief. But Job shows us both. In other words, Job has a wholehearted engagement with the problem of suffering. And how does he do that? Well, he says in verse 20, he fell to the ground in worship. Worship is this all of person engagement with life. And therefore, worship is what helps us to engage with suffering. Jesus, when he's describing worship, says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. In other words, worship is an all of self-engagement. It's not merely emotional, though it's never less than emotional, nor is it merely intellectual, though it's never less than intellectual. It's about both. 
And we have to engage with it on those levels because, of course, suffering throws up big questions for us on all of those levels. But we will only experience comfort if we start to engage with our emotions and our intellect through worship. If you're a person who favours the intellectual engagement, can I encourage you to spend some time reflecting on how you feel? Maybe talk to someone about your emotions in this situation. Maybe journal how you feel. Certainly bring them to God and express your emotions to God as Job does. If you're a person who's very emotional and actually you're already doing that, why not think about the intellectual questions that this pandemic is throwing up for you? Why not bring those to God and grapple as we go through Job with those questions and see the answers, though they won't be simple and there will be mystery, but the answers that Job provides as we start to grapple with those important questions. It's only if we engage on all of those levels that we're going to experience comfort. So we've had mystery, we've had worship, and now we come to the final area, to love. The whole drama of Job centres around verses 8 to 11, and it's a drama about love. Look at them with me. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The central point that Satan is accusing Job of is that Job does not really love God for God. Job only loves God because of what he gets from God. And so Satan is saying Job is a wealthy man. Job has got a big family. Job is very happy. He's materially prosperous. He's got a good life. Of course he says he loves you, God. Of course he's pious and he worships you, God. But if you take those things away from him, then it will expose that he doesn't really love you, God. He only loves what you get, what he gets from you. Now, intuitively, as people, we get the force of this accusation because when we're on the receiving end of this type of false love, this utility love, where someone only loves us or pretends to love us or want to get to know us because of what they're going to get from us, uh, we can find it offensive and um, hugely, hugely difficult. Now, in some sense, in London, the city and the professional environment is all about this. I remember when I first started work in the city um, as a young graduate and working as a management consultant. I was surprised. I'd never been to one before, but after about a month, I was invited to a networking event in the management consultancy firm. And I did not know what a networking event was, but it rapidly dawned on me as I saw other graduates that had started with me who knew what it was about and who were much better and more proficient at it than I was walking around the room and talking to people, all smiles and charm and getting to know people and working the room. In other words, gleaning information from each person that could be beneficial for them and kind of putting people into categories of what each person could provide for them. Now look, in work there's an extent to which that's part of the game and we all accept that, but even that um, does feel um, slightly false, doesn't it? Rather than actually getting to know someone for who they are. And maybe that's a better way to do business, a more godly way. But take it out of the professional environment and take it into a personal environment. Imagine you're on a date with someone and it's all smiles and they seem charming and they're complimenting you. 
And then it starts to dawn on you as you go through the date or maybe of the days and weeks later that they're not actually really interested in you. They were just trying to charm you for something they could get from you. Um, maybe they wanted to get to know your friend. Uh, maybe they wanted sex from you. Maybe they just wanted a date to allay the boredom. But you realise they weren't actually in it for you. How would you feel? You'd find that deeply offensive, wouldn't you? You'd be hurt by that. You'd feel used by that. Well, this is the central question about suffering, is Satan is asking, does Job really love you, God, for you, or does he just want what he gets from you? And the reason he asks that is that for us as human beings, so often we don't really want God for God, we just want God for what he, we get from God. And so suffering strips that all away because suffering removes the things that we want from God. Maybe our happiness, maybe our prosperity, maybe our health, maybe our material possessions, maybe our loved ones. And it exposes underneath it all whether or not we only want God in our lives for those things that he gives us or whether when those things are taken away and we're left with just God, there can be a contentment and a peace there because our hearts are anchored to him. Joni Erickson Tada is someone who um, in the Christian world has helped many, many people engage with the problem of suffering over the years because she herself has suffered in some really significant ways. Uh, when she was 17, she was involved in a diving accident that left her um, with only a tiny bit of arm movement and um, upper body movement, but no leg movement. And so she was bound to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. In 2017, writing in the 50 year anniversary of her accident, she wrote this. I was once the 17 year old who wretched at the thought of living life without a working body. I hated my paralysis so much I would drive my power wheelchair into walls, repeatedly banging them until they cracked. Early on I found dark companions who helped me numb my depression with scotch and cola. I just wanted to disappear. I wanted to die. What a difference time makes, as well as prayer, heaven-minded friends and deep study of God's word. All combined I began to see there are more important things in life than walking and having use of your hands. It sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. One of the reasons that Jonia Erickson Tada is so influential is that last statement. I would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. In other words, because suffering has stripped away her physical health in many senses and has left her only with Jesus, she's come to realise actually that her love was not primarily for her physical health, though of course having it taken away is hugely painful, but was for Jesus and for God above her physical health. In other words, she passed the test. She loves God for God, not for just what she's getting from him. And suffering exposes that. Now I can hear you saying, well, you know, an example like Joni Erickson Tada, or an example as Job, as we're gonna see through the book, might be very impressive, but isn't it a bit inaccessible? Doesn't it put a burden on us? After all, how can I become a person who is less attached to my material circumstances or to the things I get from God and love God for God? How can I do that? Well, we must remember the dynamic of the gospel. 1 John 4 um, says this, this is love, not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, love for God, to love God above the material things or the things that we get from God, comes because God first loves us, not because we have to manufacture it within ourselves. Job is an innocent sufferer, but he is the forerunner of the perfect, ultimate innocent sufferer, Jesus Christ. Jesus who lived the perfect life, but who ultimately, though he had done nothing wrong, was scorned and mocked and rejected and suffered unimaginably on the cross as God the Father rejected him and poured out all his anger and indignation on him for the ways that we use God. And we don't really love God, but we just love the things we get from God, and that deeply offends God. But Jesus took that punishment for us so that we might know forgiveness and his love. And as we grasp that love for us, then it changes us. Because we've been loved by Jesus in that way, we start to respond to God and to his son, Jesus Christ, with love, saying, I love you, not for what I get from you, but just for you, because you've died for me, for what you've done for me. And very often the way that God ingrains that in our lives is through the mysterious and challenging path of suffering. As those things are stripped away, we say, who, on, who do I have besides you, God? I only have you, but I love you. So as we engage with the promised suffering, three dynamics from Job chapter one to help us. Mystery, leaving areas of mystery, we can't understand everything, but we can entrust it to a God who does understand everything. Worship, as we engage with our emotions and our intellect with the problem of suffering, a whole person engagement of worship to receive comfort. And ultimately love, a love for God and for who he is, not just for the things we get from him that will sustain us and anchor us and give us contentment and peace in the midst of suffering. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Job, this incredible life lived, this incredible example written down for us, Lord, and this book which teaches us about the problem of suffering. Help us as we grapple with this to grasp that there is mystery, that we won't understand everything, to engage with wholehearted, whole life worship, engage our intellect, our emotions, and ultimately to work through this so that we might grow to know you and to love you, um, whatever our starting point, wherever we're coming from. Please minister to us through this book of Job as we grapple with this issue and with the questions it's throwing up um, and lead us to a place of love, we ask. For Jesus' sake. Amen.